Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. Good morning. Uh, Will you pray with me, please? Jesus, yeah, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just show us yeah, how to navigate, how to journey with you, um, even through some of our most ugly um, and painful emotions. God, I pray you'd show us how to journey with you. I pray, God, that we'd all have an encounter with you, the person of you, Jesus Christ, um, not a vague abstract force, but the Holy Spirit who's present with us. God, um, yeah, and I just pray you'd do that for each and every one of us wherever we're at this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing through our sermon series for the summer. We're calling it The Original Soundtrack of the Bible. The Original Soundtrack of the Bible. And um, we're diving into the Psalms. Uh, The word psalm literally just means spiritual song. So when we say that the book of uh, there's a book of Psalms in the Bible, um, it's the biggest book in the Old Testament. It's right smack dab in the middle of it. And um, it's literally just 150, you'll see there's 150 chapters there, but what those 150 chapters of the Psalms are, each and every chapter is just a spiritual song. Just 150 songs that we've, that uh, the people of God collected over about a thousand years, maybe a little over a thousand years, and over a little over a thousand years, God's people collected all 150 of these songs, and they were written by literally hundreds of different people over, over a thousand years, and yet there's one thing each and every one of these spiritual songs, each and every one of these psalms has in common, uh, and we've been talking about this each and every week. Uh, what the psalms teach us, each and every one, is not to neglect or repress or deny that we have emotions, but rather to bring them to the Lord, because the Lord wants to take each and every one of our experiences, each and every one of our emotions, and journey with us through them to a fuller and more complete understanding of who He is. See, God doesn't just want us to believe the right things. He doesn't just want even our lives. He doesn't just want us to do the right things. He wants our hearts. He wants our emotions. And part of that journey, what each and every one of the Psalms does, it takes us through uh, how God wants to journey with us through all of our different emotions with Him. Um, Today, uh, the emotion that we're diving into, the experience, the feeling we're diving into, um, woo, there we go, praise God, um, is Holy Spirit speaking today, amen. Um, The emotion, uh, the feeling that we're diving into Um, It's not exactly the prettiest one. We are diving into discontent. Discontent. When we say discontent, um, what we mean by that, what discontent is, it is frustration or anger, um, even resentment uh, from uh, circumstances, situations, people, or even God. And if we let discontent sit for a long time, if we're exposed to or if we go through discontent for a long period of time, what it eventually becomes inevitably is bitterness. Bitterness. The feelings, the emotion we're diving into that the Lord wants to in the Psalms through his own word, he wants us to bring to him, he wants to journey with us through today, our discontent and even bitterness. So what we're going to be diving into is one of our ugliest experiences, one of our ugliest emotions, and how God actually wants that part of us, that part of our heart. 
So we're diving into that today. And the psalm we're going to be diving into to, to navigate how God wants to journey with us through that is Psalm 73. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 73. That's where we're going to be diving into. Now, there's three things, three little pieces of context I want to give um, to y'all as we're diving into Psalm 73. Three things to keep in your mind as we're diving in. Uh, the first uh, piece of con- uh, content, context, is a little bit, it's, it's, it's half me, it's half the book of Psalms. See, um, uh, Psalm 73 is what we call a musical soliloquy. Everyone say that's a mouthful. Mo- musical soliloquy. Okay, cool. See, it's, yeah, it's hard to say. Um, musical soliloquy. Um, and what that is, um, so full confessions, um, I'm a drama nerd. I'm a musical theater nerd. I, I did musical theater all through middle and high school. Loved it. Um, my poor wife, um, God bless her, has had to listen to and watch more musicals this year than she has her entire life combined. All the years of her life before, and she's patient, and she's good to me. Um, a couple weeks ago, we were watching The Heights, and she's like, half of this is in Spanish. I don't even know. What do we do? And I was like, just be paid. Thank you. Um, she's really great to me. Um, uh, tried to make up for it the next week um, with a good date night. Probably, probably, well, um, hope, I got, hope I got that right. But, um, uh, I'm a musical nerd, and my favorite moment, one of the things I love about musical theater is, is that it, it has a lot of what they call musical soliloquies. Uh, and a musical soliloquy, it's that moment in a play or in a drama when stuff is happening, you're in the middle of the action, and then all of a sudden time freezes, except for one character. And this one character will start to share what's going on internally in their hearts. There will be a flashback, they'll, they'll talk about some memories, of what's going on inside them in this moment, or, or they'll have a flash forward, their dreams, their hopes, what they hope is going to happen, or they'll talk about where they're at, and it's normally these really gripping songs, and then all of a sudden, they finish the song, and time goes back, and they'll make a quick decision, and the point of that musical soliloquy, the point of that whole song was to communicate to you all the emotion, and all the effort, and all the energy that went to this very quick moment so you don't miss it. That's what a musical soliloquy is about. It's sharing with you internally all the heavy stuff that's going on in this very brief, easy-to-miss moment, so you don't miss it. Psalm 73, uh, for, for, the, for the drama nerds, for the musical theater nerds out there, Psalm 73 is a musical soliloquy. The, the writer, the songwriter, his name is Asaph, he's sharing what would be very easy, sharing with his community about an internal journey he went on with the Lord through bitterness and discontentment. And he's sharing it because he knows, he says, it would have been easy for you to miss this. So that's the first thing to understand about Psalm 73. It's a musical soliloquy, sharing this internal heart drama. The second thing to understand, it's a testimony. It's a musical testimony. Um, this summer, there's been a couple songs that have come out. We, we love to sing um, songs from this one band. Um, they're called Maverick City. We, we love Maverick City here at Classic City. God bless them. God bless that, that worship band. And one of the things they've done this summer, they've released a couple of songs that are musical testimonies. So there's, there's one in mind that I'm thinking of. Um, it's called Talking to Jesus, right? Um, it's, it's one of my mom's, mom's favorites. And it shares this story. It's this guy named Brandon Smith, and he's sharing his a testimony about how his grandma taught him to pray in the Spirit, and then how his mom also showed him to pray uh, and, and talk to Jesus relationally. And then he talks about how he as a father is teaching his son, this experience he has teaching his son how to pray with him, how to pray to the Lord and talk to him. And then he invites everyone who's singing with him 
sing with me. Let's talk to Jesus now. And what a musical testimony does, it's a worship song. Yes, and the intention is for you to worship, but it's also sharing a testimony where, where the singer basically says, this is what God's done in my life, and there's two reasons for the testimony. There's two reasons why you'd take a worship song, and rather than just having a worship song, you'd have a testimony in between it. The first is to say, this is what God's done. Let's glorify him for how good he is. He wants you to join in. The, the musician wants you to join in worshiping for what God's done through his life. But the second, and this is what's really important for us today, Musical testimonies, worship testimonies exist in the Psalms and otherwise so that you can understand if this is what God's done through this person's life, he can do it through me as well. It's an invitation that this is an example of what God wants to do in and through your life, even in the moment while you're worshiping. And so this is what Psalm 73 is. It's, it's a musical soliloquy where it takes you through a heart journey it's a musical testimony of this young worship leader named Asaph, where he's sharing, this is what God's brought me through, and it's an invitation from him and from the Lord saying, this is what he wants to bring you through as well. Now, the last piece of context I want to give y'all before we dive into the actual text, I know we're doing a lot of context, but it's important, is who this guy Asaph was. Um, Asaph, there's, there's two things that's important to know about this guy Asaph. Um, he wrote a couple of the Psalms, so you'll see a Psalm of Asaph, and normally when we're reading through the Psalms and we see that a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Asaph or a, psalm of, uh, the, a song of the sons of Korah, we're just kind of like, okay, cool, don't know who that is, let's keep moving. But you'll miss a lot if you don't understand who's giving the song, especially, right, we talked about this being a testimony and, and a soliloquy. You'll miss a lot if you don't understand who's talking. Asaph was the grandson of the prophet Samuel. Um, he was the grandson of the prophet Samuel. If you've uh, read the Bible, you know there's two books, First and Second Samuel. They take up a lot of the Old Testament. Uh, and there's not one but two books named after this holy man, Samuel. He was a prophet and a priest, and a judge. In Israel's history, he's considered in some ways the most powerful man in all of Israel's history. And he was the person who God trusted in some ways more than any other person in the Bible. Because he's the only person in the people of God's history, at least especially in the people of Israel's history, to have political power. He was a judge, so he had political power over the country. He was a prophet, so he had power to say, this is what God's speaking to you, so he had social power. And he also was, the, was one of the priests, one of the high priests of the nation. So he had all the spiritual power too. He was the only person God trusted to run every facet of life of his people. He's this bastion of faith. And this is his grandson speaking when he comes in the front to share what God's doing in his life. Remember that. The second thing to understand about Asaph is he was the priest that got put in charge of worship for the entire nation. King David, who wrote a huge portion of the Psalms, probably the greatest psalmist, the greatest worship leader probably in human history, said to this young man, hey, I want you to collaborate with me as we come up with worship songs together. I want you to be the one who, whenever we have a holy day, whenever the people come for temple worship, I want you to be the one who leads everyone in worship. And this is what's going on when Asaph first sings this song for Israel. The first time he gives this musical testimony, he gets up in front of the whole congregation of Israel, and this is what he tells them. I want you to read with me. We're going to go through the first couple of verses of Psalm 73. 
A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That sounds about right, right? God is good. You can see the people of God saying amen. But then he says this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the greatest worship leader in the nation. This is the grandson of the most holy and powerful man potentially in human history, definitely in Israel's history. This is the guy David trusts to lead all the worship. And he gets up and he begins this testimony by saying, I almost screwed up, guys. I had a really close call. And in my heart, I was envious. In my heart, I was bitter. He's going to use that word later. In my heart, I was discontent with what God was doing in my life. I was really frustrated with what God was giving me. We see Asaph, this great worship minister, frustrated, discontent, even bitter in his heart. And he's confessing it to the congregation. So the first lesson I want us to hear The first thing I want you all to hear, if you want to journey with the Lord through bitterness, if you want healing from discontentment, if you are frustrated in your heart, the first thing the Lord wants you to hear and the first thing the Lord wants you to do is confess it. He wants you to be honest. He wants you to be real, and he wants to hear it. He doesn't want you to hide it, neglect it, or deny it. He wants you to confess it before him and confess it, right? Asaph literally does this in front of the entire congregation of Israel. In front of the entire nation, he wants you to do it in the safety of the people of God. And this is the first lesson, this is the first point from the story and the testimony of Asaph. The first thing that I don't want us to miss is this. If we want healing from bitterness, if we want healing through the discontentment, if we want God to journey with us through those tough, angry moments, seasons of our life, we have to be honest and vulnerable and authentic with the Lord, and with our community. And if you don't have that space, and if you haven't been that space for people, I want you to hear this. The Lord is calling us to, one, be that space, be that congregation for people to be able to honestly and earnestly confess how they're feeling and what they're going through. But also, we as Christians are called to what church, literally the reason we gather primarily on Sundays The historical reason why God's people gather is to create space for the Holy Spirit to move through us together to confess how we are feeling and what we are going through. The first step in the journey is confession. And he goes on. I want you to see that he goes on for literally 10 verses talking about how hard the situation he's going through is and how frustrated he is with these people who are treating him in wickedness and how they're getting away with it. Let me, I'm going to bring us to verse 11. I'm going to bring us to verse 11. I'm going to skip through because he goes on for a long time talking about how hard this is. If you're wondering about how raw to be, uh, 10 verses of Scripture should communicate. Be raw. Then he says this. He's talking about these wicked people. They say in verse 11, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. These are these people who are hurting me. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And then he says this in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken. I've been rebuked every morning. He's being raw about where he's at. He's sharing authentically how he feels. This authentic confession. But he doesn't complain, and I want to draw a a distinction here 
I want you to see how Asaph draws a distinction between confessing our struggles, confessing where we're at emotionally, confessing, and complaining. See, look at what he does in verse 15. Verse 15. Check this out. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed generations of our children. If I had spoken thus. That phrase literally means, if that was it, if I left it at that, then I would have betrayed something, right? He begins this by saying how he almost sinned, how he struggled and almost slipped up. See, the distinction that Asaph is making is he's saying there's a very thin line, it's a very narrow dodge between confessing authentically and complaining. When we're confessing, we're sharing vulnerably and honestly about where we're at. But at the end, we say this, we remember that God is true, and we say this is where I'm at, but I'm not going to say that's how actually things are. There's a difference between reality and truth. Confession says, this is really how I feel, but the truth is that God is good. Confession says, this is what I want to say, but I'm not going to say it as though, I'm not going to speak it thus. I'm not going to say that's how things are. I'm not going to act out of that spirit. I'm not going to work out of that emotion. I'm going to honestly confess it, but I'm not going to work in that spirit. That's the difference between confession and complaining. And Asaph makes it really clear. He says, I almost... He says, I dodged a bullet. The Lord kept me from sinning because I learned how to confess without complaining. And we have to learn to confess without complaining in our bitterness, in our anger, in our frustration. We have to learn to be vulnerable and be honest about where we're at, but we don't speak it out of uh, a place of wanting to work in that spirit. We speak to it. We say, this is what I'm really feeling. Please help me. This is how I feel, God. Please save me community, congregation, this is what I'm wrestling with. Can you please walk me through this? Because I know the truth is different from the reality I'm experiencing in this moment. That's the difference between confessing and complaining. And Asaph says, hey, I want to, the Lord is inviting us in our bitterness and in our anger. Confess authentically. Refuse to complain. Refuse to complain. That's verse 15. Um, and, and then check this out. In verse 16 and 17, Asaph kind of shows us what do we do in, in spite of that. So we, we're, not, we're confessing, we're not complaining, so what do we do with it? He says this, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, right, when I thought of how to figure this out, these feelings, these experiences I was having, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Again, he's being authentic. He says, this seems exhausting. If you are in a season of bitterness, if you're discontent, if you're frustrating, the most exhausting thing you can do is actually seek out the answer. The most exhausting thing you can do, the, the, the thing that would frustrate you the most, is to actually seek out the answer. We're, we're going through a, a, a season of discontent. We're going through a season of bitterness, at least as a nation, it, it, probably as a community, and definitely a lot of us as individuals right? It's been a hard season for a lot of us. And as we're coming through it, one of the things just that I think no one in here would be surprised to find out is post-COVID, most people are not going back to their church communities. Most people are not going back to their congregations. 
and even those who are consistently following or, or, or kind of staying a distance. And on, on the one hand, right, we're trying to figure out this new normal. We're trying to figure out when is it wise to come back to our congregation. We're trying to figure out what is safe health-wise, and that's absolutely understandable. But I have to, to, to think what I've seen and what I've experienced. Most of the people I know who are struggling to come back into Christian community, they're not really struggling with health safety. They're struggling because they know that they've got some discontentment, they've got some frustration, maybe even some bitterness at people or situations or even God. And the most exhausting thing they can imagine doing is actually getting in His presence. Or maybe even worse, just as bad if not maybe worse, coming into the congregation of God, coming into a place and space with God's people and actually confessing and working through that. It is a wearisome task, or at least it seems like a wearisome task, actually pursuing healing through our frustrations and our bitterness. And Asaph owns up to that, and we have to own up to that. But we still have to do it. In the book of Job, um, Job in the Old Testament was known as the man who suffered more than any other in all of human history, right? He's one of the people identified in Scripture as a man of suffering, familiar with sorrow. Jesus was also identified that way, and Job is Christ-like in that. And, and Job actually goes through his um, suffering, just like Asaph. Asaph's talking about how he's suffering because he's doing the right thing. He's being righteous, and the people around him aren't. Job, in the same way, suffers— because he was righteous, and because Satan takes so much offense at that, he challenges God to, to a bet, and God has the choice, but God basically says, hey, Job really loves me, and Satan says, prove it. Let him prove it. And so Job is suffering because he's righteous. This is a side note. This is half related to the sermon today, but I felt like I needed to at least drop this nugget uh, for the young Christians in the room and for the old Christians in the room, a, a healthy reminder for all of us. The reality is that if we really pursue Jesus, if we really pursue righteousness, that does not make your life easier. It makes it much harder. That is just a nugget of reality. I think it's good for us to chew on. Asaph and Job remind us of that. If we actually want to pursue God, right, it is a wearisome task working through discontent. It is a wearisome task working through frustration. It is an exhausting task coming to the Lord when you are bitter. Exhausting. It's a wearisome task, and yet we're called to it. Job, this man of suffering, who is suffering for his righteousness, literally at one point his friends turn against him, and they're accusing him, and he literally comes back at them with this. He says, what do I really want? What do I really think? He says, I want to bring God to court. That's where I'm at. I want to walk up to God in his own court and in his face say, what the heck is wrong with this? What the heck is wrong with you? But then he says this. He says, I want to really honestly confront God. He says this, because I want to see how he'll fix me. He says, I want to walk into God's court and say, what is wrong with you? I want to accuse him of doing something wrong. I want to accuse him of putting me through hell because I know his character. I know the truth, even when my reality is terrible, and the truth is that he is going to show me where I'm wrong. He's going to fix me. He's going to heal me. He's going to hold me even when I think he's the problem because the truth is something in my heart is, even though I can't identify it. 
That's what it means to go through the wearisome task of coming into the court of the Lord through our frustrations, discontent, and bitterness. That's what it's really like to journey with the Lord through this. We confess to Him, we confess to His people, and we come into His presence. And the last thing we're going to want to do a lot of times is read Scripture, even though we know it's the counsel of the Lord to us. The last thing we're going to want to do is pray to the God who we a lot of times blame for what's going on in our lives. The last thing we're going to want to do is come into his congregation or worship him when we're angry and we're bitter and we're frustrated, but it's what we're called to. And it's where we discern the end. It's where we actually find the answer to our ugly feelings. Read this with me. This is, this is verse 21. This is Asaph. He's being honest again. When my soul was bittered, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was a brute. I was ignorant. I was like an animal towards you. I was like a beast towards you. See, there's two things Asaph realizes when he comes into the presence of God, when he starts worshiping, when he really starts confessing to the Lord and to others what he's going through, when he really accepts, even though it's exhausting, whatever the Lord has for him, the first realization he has is this. He says, I was brutish, I was ignorant, and then he uses this phrase, I was like a beast to you. That phrase in the Hebrew literally says, I treated you like I was an animal. See, when Asaph grew up, the ancient Near East, it was an agricultural society. Everyone's wealth was measured not in how much coin they had in their hand or how much money or currency they had under their name. Your wealth was literally measured by how, much, how many crops you produced every year and then also by the amount of farm animals you owned. That was how you ate. That was how you got by. How many farm animals you had. They were an agricultural society. Every single one of them, almost without exception, was a farmer or at least very familiar with farming, right? And so when Asaph is talking about animals, I treated you like an animal, this is what he's got in mind. Uh, one of my friends, Pearl, um, when I was at Princeton Seminary, one of my dearest friends, her name was Pearl Quick. She's a fascinating woman, love, uh, woman of God, she's crazy and wonderful. Um, part of the reason why she was crazy was she grew up half her life in the Bronx and half her life on a farm. <laughs> I don't know how... I don't know how you balance that. I, would, I just, it was crazy. It was like one second, I was, I was, one second she was a city girl, the next second she was like on the farm, like getting all dirty. I was like, what is? Um, but Pearl loved to farm. And she was a phenomenal farmer. In fact, she was such a good farmer, they put her in charge. The seminary owned a farm. They called it the farminary. That was catchy. Um, and, she, and she ran the farminary. She was the student put in charge of the farminary. And one of the things she would always remind me of, she would always talk about the first lesson she learned and the first lesson every good farmer had to learn about their animals. She would always say, it's really important. She said, Americans forget this because we watch too much Disney. We've watched Bambi a couple too many times. She says, when you walk up every morning to feed the chickens or to feed, pour the slop out for the pigs or to refill the water trough for the goats, every time you walk up, you're going to see these animals run up to you. And they're going to run up to you and they're going to look at you with these big eyes like they're really excited, and you're going to think, wow, they really love me, until you pour the food out. And then their eyes go right down, because the truth is they don't care at all about you. They just know that when a human comes up with a bucket, it's feeding time. 
See, the first thing Asaph realizes is he says, I was treating you, God, like an animal treats its farmer. I was treating you as nothing but a meal ticket. I never looked at you as an actual person. I never treated you with any real love. The reason deep down what was mixed up in my discontentment, what was mixed up in my frustrations with my own life, what was mixed into my bitterness was that I forgot God is actually a person. See, the catch is we, we talk about this all the time, especially in it's a, just a cultural thing in American Christianity. We use this phrase all the time. It's a very good, very real phrase. We form a relationship with God. But so often, when we talk about God, when we approach Him, we think of Him as an abstract force or some distant being or, or some vague set of rules in John 5, Jesus literally says, you search the scriptures for you, think in them you'll find eternal life. But the one to whom they testify, the person they're actually written by and inspired by, is standing before you today and you have missed him. He's speaking to people who have the entire Old Testament memorized word for word. And he's saying, you keep thinking I'm a set of rules. You keep thinking I'm some vague abstract force. You keep thinking I'm this overlord that's vaguely up there, a meal ticket, but I'm a person and I'm sitting here in front of you and you still haven't talked to me. This is the confessions of a minister, y'all. Um, a question I learned to ask a long time ago in ministry. Uh, it's a basic, basic, essential question. How's your relationship with God doing? If I'm being honest with myself and, and with y'all, the answer a lot of times that I give and the answer I frequently hear when I ask people, how's your relationship with God doing? The, the answer people tell me, what they normally respond, is with how they are feeling, how they are doing, and how their spiritual disciplines are. And that's not all bad, but um, my wife and I celebrated our, our anniversary this week, right? Our first anniversary. And yeah, praise God. Whew, we made it. And if every time... Someone asked, how's your relationship with Missy going? How's your relationship with your spouse going? And you only responded with, this is how I feel. This is how I'm doing. And I'm doing my job to them, right? I'm like doing my house chores. I'm like, I'm the one who, you know, takes care of the bills. Or I'm the one who watches the budget. Or I, I brought them flowers, you know, regularly. I take them on our weekly date. If that's all you ever said really quickly, really quickly in an intimate relationship, someone would think you didn't actually have any relationship with that person at all. And yet that's how we treat God so often. If we're being really honest, and again, this is, this is the great worship pastor of the nation. And what he's saying is this, it's so easy. But when we get frustrated, when we get discontent, when we're embittered in heart, Part of what's wrapped up in it is a real situation that was painful, but part of what gets wrapped up in it is that we forget that God is actually a person who feels more than we do, thinks more than we do, cares more than we do, loves more than we do, and is more real than we are. And yet we neglect his personhood. We treat him like an animal treats a farmer, just as nothing more than a meal ticket. 
part of the discontentment. The other thing that Asaph says when he gets to the answer, when he comes to the heart, when he comes into the presence of God, when he comes into the courts, the other thing that God confronts him with is this, that because he's a person, he's not just a means to an end. See, Asaph has been complaining, complaining, what's it worth that I'm being righteous? What's it worth that I know the right thing? What's it worth that I'm doing the right thing? All these wicked people are getting off better. He realizes in this moment, wait, God is not a means to an end. He is the end in and of himself. God is not the means to something else that I want. God is not my way to a happier life. God is not my way uh, to be a better person. God is not my secret to being my best self. God is my purpose for living. And worshiping him is literally why I exist. He says, my discontentment exists because I'm trying to seek an end that's not what I'm made for. I'm made to worship God. I'm made to be with God. I'm made to know him. In Philippians 4, uh, Paul literally says this. He says, I want to know Christ. I exist to know Christ. And he says this, I'll die with him if it means I get closer to his death. I will suffer with him if it means I understand his heart more. I will do anything I can to obtain his resurrection from the dead. And he's not just talking about eternal life when he says that. He's talking about being present with the Lord in heaven eternally. He says, I'll do anything, anything, anything if it gets me closer to my end, the reason why I exist, exist to know God, because God is not a means to an end. He's the end of himself. I want you to hear this in Asaph's own words. We're in verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You're constantly with me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. God is my portion. God is my hope. God is my life, my strength forever. That's the secret to journeying through discontentment. That's the healing balm for bitterness. God is the end, not the means. I want to give one quick testimony, just one quick little testimony about uh, what was probably one of the most intense growth moments in my walk with the Lord. Um, a while ago, I lost my grandpa, years ago, lost my grandfather. And the last encounter I had with him before he passed away, just a little over a week before he died, um, I was very angry and I was very hurt. And uh, because I was angry and hurt, I treated him badly. And uh, very sheepishly, very like haphazardly said, okay, I'm sorry. And then he drove off. Nearly a week later, he passed away. And uh, it was a very hard day. Um, that night, I, as I went to sleep, I went to sleep crying because I missed my grandpa, but also because there was some bitterness that was starting to stir up and form in my heart. There was discontent that was very quickly becoming bitterness in my heart. And I was bitter and I was angry at myself. I was frustrated with myself. I was also frustrated because the Lord had allowed my grandfather to die, even though I was not, I, that was my last moment with him. I was like, really? You're going to let that be my last moment with him? And, and as I was praying, I realized I came to this moment where I realized, God, this is the moment where I either can be really bitter and angry that, that you allowed him 
to die and you allowed me, him to leave me in this state or I can come to you for comfort and I could really use your love right now. And I went to sleep for four weeks straight. Um, every single night that I, my head hit the pillow, I began to cry, missing my grandpa. But I fell asleep weeping tears of joy because every night when I prayed that same little prayer, I could really use your love right now. He showed up. In the stillness and the quiet, he came to me and spoke with me and was with me through it. And his comfort healed me every night until the bitterness was completely and utterly gone. There's an old hymn, and in it it says, The things of this world grow strange and dim in the light of his glory and his grace. The things of this world, the frustrations of this world, the loss and the pain and the anger and the frustration and the discontent and the bitterness of this world fade. They melt away in the light of his glory and his grace when he is our end. This is the journey the Lord wants to take each and every one of us through. This is the journey. This is the beauty that the Lord wants to work through the pain and the ugly of our discontentment. He wants us to confess, not to complain, but to confess. And in the midst of our confession, he wants us to come. Even though he knows it is exhausting for us, he's calling us to come to him. Because when we come to him, we realize he's a person, the best person. And we realize he is our end, not just a means. And the end of our lives, when we find it in him, is the strength of our life and our portion forever. And the things of this world grow strange and dim in the light of his glory and his grace, even and especially our bitterness. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you are good. We thank you, God, that you are the answer. God, we thank you. Uh, yeah, just please forgive us, Lord, when we make you an end, uh, a means to an end and not the end of yourself, God. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the reason for our lives. Remind us of that today. God, I pray for each and every one of us um, who is struggling with and when we will inevitably struggle with frustration and anger and bitterness, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just remind us of your presence. I pray the things of this world would dim in your light, and I pray, God, that you just fulfill us again afresh. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.